Okay, so for the bar, you need to know beer here, beer here, oder ich fall um. So bring the beer here, bring the beer here, or I'll follow. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're asking senior members and junior members to continue their conversations outside the classroom. Often, this looks like staying after class to hash out a final question, having conversations all the way down our very long hallway, or meeting for coffee to workshop an idea that was born from class discussions. It's encounters like this, big and small, that make up the spirit of an ICS education. My name is Danielle Yet, and today we're back with Bob Sweetman and Gideon Strauss for part two of our introductory series on reformational philosophy. If you have no idea what reformational philosophy is, or if you're intrigued to hear Gideon and Bob's takes on the tradition, stick with us for the next few weeks to see what happens. If you're just joining us, Pause and go back right now to listen to part one of this series first to catch up with the conversation so far. Good? Okay, now on with the show. Inspiration can strike at unexpected moments. And for a student, there's nothing quite like the feeling of something clicking, of an idea long percolating at the back of your mind, finally rushing to the fore, of connections being forged. So for our first segment, we're asking our new junior members to share some enlivening, entertaining, and challenging moments when they've experienced just such sparks of inspiration. Today's question, what is one extracurricular, that is non-classroom related, learning opportunity you've had this year? Last semester, I was involved with the Graduate Christian Student Fellowship, GCF, uh, at the University of Toronto campus, which I really enjoy tremendously attending the meetings of. Um, So there would be uh, graduate students from like a plethora of uh, backgrounds and academic disciplines. And then uh, they would organize um, like small topics for discussion. Like every week we meet on Thursday nights. And for example, there would be a student who does Christian ethics and also someone who does uh, molecular genetics. And then 
we would talk about the ethics of genetic engineering and and then just to hear sort of experts <laughs> up and coming young researchers uh, perspectives on those things it has really helped me broaden my views another another thing that i've been involved with is something called wine before breakfast that's also with the christian reform campus ministries um and it's not as scandalous as it sounds or is it um because it's a so it's a communion service at 7:22 a.m. uh in the chapel at Wycliffe on Tuesdays and i have found it so meaningful and so beautiful and just such a a good um example of what church and community can be like and so we have yeah different people write the prayers different people read the scriptures different people serve communion um and preach every tuesday um and another cool thing that i've done was just yesterday i went to a service that i found out about through when before breakfast um with the irish poet and theologian padre gotuma and he read some of his poetry and it was just beautiful and it was a really great experience there's videos on youtube made by the bon appetit test kitchen and they're they're really entertaining but also like i i really like cooking and i really like food of all varieties and trying new foods and and that kind of stuff so learning how to cook and cook like a, a whole variety of stuff um while also being like like these people are super entertaining to watch and like the cool thing about it is it's basically like a sitcom but it's real life Staple of everyday life here at ICS is the rhythm of classes. Every week, senior and junior members gather to discuss shared texts and explore various philosophical, theological, and historical themes together. The classroom is where studying at ICS most obviously becomes a communal project. For our second segment, we're attempting to bridge the divide between the classroom and life. So we're inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses. Today I'm back here with Bob Sweetman for part 2 of our crash course in reformational philosophy, which is one of the introductory courses every student takes at ICS. Last time we introduced the key reformational figure of Abraham Kuyper and his vision for principled pluralism. This week we have two goals. First, we're going to talk about Kuyper's famous or infamous idea of sphere sovereignty and then second also introduce you to the figure of Hermann Duevert to see what he makes of Kuyper's thought so welcome back bob it's good to be able to talk to you again so to recap briefly uh we're going to talk a little bit about who kuyper was just reminding ourselves last week we touched on principle pluralism and religious diversity and we finished our conversation with the uh historical comparison of Kuyper leading a a movement of Dutch farmers with little red hats saying make the Netherlands great again. So Bob maybe starting there. How was Abraham Kuyper not Donald Trump for the Netherlands? I think it because he had this sense of um 
that uh, an ideological plurality was not only an inevitable part of the society that he had grown up in and that, that was operative in his adult life, um, but that there was uh, something generative uh, about uh, a society with uh, several um, ideological options, so to speak. And you, you get the idea that he might have been a rather competitive man and, and uh, relish the notion of um, mobilizing um, Reformed Christians uh, to uh, compete in that environment uh, in a more effective way than had hitherto been the case. That's what I would say. So, Bob, Kuiper and Grun live in this historical context that can perhaps be described, at least in part, as romantic. Mm -hmm. And they are responding to intellectual movements that could be described as historicist. Yeah. How would you define those two terms, romantic and historicist? Well, the, the uh, romantic, um, what would you say, uh, dynamic uh, within uh, late 18th and 19th century culture is a turn away from the intellectualism of the Enlightenment to, uh, to emphasize our affective, uh, uh, the affective dimension of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So perceptions, emotions, intuitions, uh, uh, you know, Basically, everything that's associated with uh, with the um, with consciousness, but is not, if you will, ratiocinative, right? So, following some kind of logical trail. There is a connection between Romanticism and Pietism because that's also a feature of Pietism. Mm -hmm. Pietism is older than Romanticism. Pietism really starts in the in the 17th century. But there would be some resonance. But there's as definitely a resonance. To the oh yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah. for sure, for sure. I mean, uh, yeah. So uh, so that uh, and so the organic. As, a, as opposed to the mechanical. So that's one implication of moving toward the affective from the, from the intellectualist. Um, so that, that, that might be all you need to know about the romantic. Um, and so, of course, for Kuiper, your central identity is associated with the heart. Uh, interestingly, uh, the, our, our apprehensive functions then, are, then he changes it to uh, in a kind of insectile uh, uh, metaphor, you know, the antennae. Okay, right? yeah. But, these are, yeah. but yeah. he also often talks about, you know, religion playing on the lyre yeah. of the heart and so on and so forth. Butterfly, so, though. I mean, not cricket or... Yeah. So and historicist? That, and then historicist is... This sense that um, in our making, right? So if you think of uh, our making of culture and society as really uh, the building blocks of our historical experience, that uh, this making and the power that allows it to take place uh, is the, the central line within which we discover our humanity, we disfigure our humanity, we uh, refigure our humanity, we develop our humanity, and all of that entails in terms of um, social and cultural um, development. Right, yeah, yeah. So that, that allows for an interesting segue because I grew up in South Africa. I grew up as an Afrikaner, 
I grew up in a context of um, uh, enthusiastic Christian nationalism. When I read into the background of my cradle religion, which is you know basically a Christianly tinted racism, it came out of Dutch Reformed theology. Now, South African apartheid theology, the, the ethnic nationalist theology of the Dutch Reformed Church of my childhood, appears to have been shaped primarily by theologians in the 1920s and the 1930s that had studied in Germany and who would have cited much more the influence of Herder and Fichte and so on on, on their notion of the default, you know, than the ethnos, the nation. But the Caperians of my childhood, so church leaders who directly identified with the influence of Abraham Kuyper, um, uh, there was a Professor Treernicht, for example, who was a, a figure like that, bought into that Christian nationalism and they brought the terminology of Kuyper and of sphere sovereignty uh, along uh, to bolster the Christian nationalism of apartheid theology. What do you make of this use of Kuiper in the South African context? Well, it makes a certain sense. I mean, because Kuiper's interested in differentiation and he sees that as somehow rooted in the very story of creation. So it's about, you know, separating out this from that and making sure that those, those separations are honored. Uh, and so on and so forth. So you could see how that could, if you think that somehow the historical meaning of our lives is uh, located in discrete peoples with discrete destinies and so on and so forth, and you have a, uh, a multi-ethnic body politic, um, you know, it's not a big jump mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to something like apartheid, especially if you add the European culture or Western culture's superiority complex, yeah. you know, then it's it's not a big jump. But saying that, I don't think you then have to say that taints uh, a, notion, a notion like sphere sovereignty uh, because um, you could only say that if you really thought that somehow you could develop concepts and theories that are risk-free. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would say that you know this isn't this doesn't come out of Kuiper, but I would say uh, that this is one of the things that uh, the Christian community has to recognize is the degree to which we have in, uh, wanted to engage in something like uh, explicit Christian scholarship as a an attempt to inoculate the Christian community against uh, contagions that might kill it. In other words how can we make this world uh, safer mm -hmm. for Christians and if so Christians who need and want to think? And unfortunately, uh, you can't make thought or any cultural manifestation risk-free. Mm. So any powerful theory uh, can be deployed in a perverse way. A key connection between Abraham Kuyper and our Institute for Christian Studies is the philosopher Hermann Duewert. Once again, uh, as we did in our previous session, um, I went and read that fount of all knowledge, Wikipedia, 
Now, Wikipedia tells us that Dwyer lived from 1894 to 1977, that he was a professor of law and jurisprudence at the Freie Universität Amsterdam from 1926 to 1965, and that he co-founded a philosophical tradition usually called Reformational Philosophy. And that's actually the title of a course that you teach and that we're talking about in, in these podcast episodes. What, Bob, do we need to know about Hermann Duevert as a person for the purpose of today's conversation? Well, I think he was, uh, I mean, he was, he grew up under the influence of and, and deeply uh, with a deep sense of appurtenance to uh, Kuiper and the political movement that Kuiper founded. Um, so that's the anti-revolution, well, was in those days, the anti-revolutionary party. And you, so you can see the connection to this uh, Christian response to uh, the French Revolution mm -hmm. in the very name of the party. It's, you know, it's a, a party that is, to re is resisting, you might say, the uh, tendency for the effects of the revolution to, to universalize and to gobble up reality. Um, and so, you know, when he finished his studies, he, uh, he went to work for the party. Uh, he became one of its uh, public intellectuals. Um, he uh, was appointed to uh, the think tank, which was named after Abraham Kuyper and lived in The Hague uh, and so on. And then it's from there that um, he, uh, I mean, eventually was appointed to a position in the history and philosophy of law. And that was his position at the Free University and developed a, uh, a comprehensive uh, philosophical account of the creation, you might say, mm -hmm. um, as a way of contextualizing uh, the study of law. Okay. And to do it in, in a way that's uh, religiously self-aware. Mm -hmm. um, so he, um, you know, Kuiper's notion of these worldviews as, um, as engines of historical uh, experience um, lived with him. It, it, comes, it comes to expression in a term that he coins of ground motives, yeah. that is to say these corporate dynamics in life that so they're, they're embodied in communities mm -hmm. um, and that they, they provide a kind of orientation to the world that's uh, prior to our conscious elaboration mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Because of course, we individuals have short lives in the on the scale of things. And so we're always too late to be at the beginning of these stories. Many of the first generation of senior members, as we call faculty professors at, at the ICS, uh, were people, and I'm thinking Hindercart, Jim Altheus, Kelsierfeld, people who had Duevert uh, introduced to them by H. Heaven Runner at Calvin College. How would you describe Runners to Eviert as you encountered Runners to Eviert? Well, I think that H.M. Runner used philosophy to do what he really felt called to do, which was to inspire a new reformation. So it was going to be a reformation in which uh, the evangelical um, insistence uh, on a high view of, of Scripture as Word of God and a uh, personal 
a relationship with uh, Jesus Christ as the bringer of God's salvation and judgment and uh, would be allied to a, uh, a creation-wide sense of the world that one is to bear witness uh, to Jesus Christ in, uh, and that bearing witness would take a variety of forms, political, social, cultural, educational, mm -hmm. you name it. And that's really what he wanted was to excite generations of students to such a, such a vision of what Protestant Christianity could be. And he, and he used philosophy as uh, an excuse oh, to preach yeah. that. Oh. So, um, big question. So what did Dewey make of Kuiper's sphere sovereignty? Well, I, he's, he smelled the historicism and he wanted that out. So really uh, what are sort of societal spheres and sort of historical spheres because he want, wanted them to be really about societal spheres. That is to say uh, the differentiated uh, societal specifications that you know, had emerged in the historical process, but that, in his view, represented a response to, and I'm going to not use his language, I'm going to use language I've learned actually from our colleague Nick Ansel, uh, divine invitations to flourish in this or that way, mm -hmm. right, which is cosmos-wide. And, uh, and so what he did is he, he developed a kind of systematic perspective that allowed him to uh, give an ontological account of these various societal spheres. Um, so you didn't just have to stick with the historical emergence, but you could say that that historical emergence is a recognition of something that goes right back to the, the very creation of the world. And that is around what he called irreducible modes of existing. So they weren't uh, they weren't things, but they were hows. And so he developed a sense of just how one was uh, when one was engaged in, say, capitalist activity, artistic production, education. Uh, government, law, you name it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So unless I'm, I'm mistaken, um, Duevier then suggested that if you wanted to uh, be able to correctly um, identify a specific societal sphere or a kind of social relationship within a particular societal sphere like a business or a state or a school, one way to identify it would be by means of a mode within which it had its, to use his language, qualifying function. What even is that, a qualifying function? Um, well, you can, I can, I mean, let me give you an analogy. So you meet someone and uh, you get to know this person and you realize that whenever the pressure's on, this person just has a horrible temper. In fact, that temper becomes so characteristic of your experience of this person that you finally say, 
he's an angry man. Now, does he have other emotions? Absolutely. He has the full range of human emotions. But there's something about anger that that man returns to over and over and over again. Okay, so that I think is an analogy to the role of what is a qualifying function. So when you are engaged in running an art gallery, it has to be about the art. And so for Dovid, he said that uh, you know art, um, artistic uh, production comes out of a certain way of flourishing in the world, which he called the aesthetic. And he understood that in terms of an eye for harmony and so on and so forth. Um, but so it has to be about that. That has that that aesthetic has to be that characteristic that returns over and over again and is so important to everything that's going on in that uh, you know in that gallery or that museum or whatever that it is it, it has that kind of characterizing or qualifying sense. It, mm -hmm. it gives its character to the whole, even though, of course, there's all kinds of other things, like you have to make money in order to stay around, so there's got to be an economic mm -hmm. thing. Uh, it may well be that uh, you, if you're in a totalitarian state, you're going to have to deal with uh, you know, political oversight. Uh, if you, you, know, you have to have space. Um, you know, it's anyway, you, know, yeah. you can go on and on. Among the modes that that Duivert identifies as house in which things are is the technoformative. Could you talk a little bit about the technoformative and then maybe say something about uh, what Duivert did with the technoformative in response to the historicism of Kuiper? Yeah, he didn't call it the technoformative. That's actually Kelsiervelt's language. Huh? Um, he called it the historical. And he always made a distinction between uh, events, human events, uh, actions, events, and so on in time, and those that were his historically significant. So, you know, the example he always used was the Battle of Waterloo, which, of course, brought Napoleon to his end. If you remember, for Kuiper, Napoleon was in and of himself a societal slash historical sphere. Uh, so he picks up the Battle of Waterloo and he says, um, well, the, it, it happened in the fall, so the grain was ripe. And one of the fascinating things about uh, the battle is that there were, at the same time and in the same place, farmers uh, harvesting their wheat. Now, was that harvesting of wheat an historical event? Um, no one would deny that the Battle of Waterloo, in his telling, would be it was an historical event. But was this was what the farmers were doing an historical event? And he wanted to make the case that no, what constituted an, uh, an event, a past event, and historical event was its capacity to bring change. That is to say, to a, a unit, you might say, of historical experience, like a nation um, or a group of nations or uh, an uh, important you know, group within a nation or something. You're bringing change. So, and that takes power and that takes means. 
So you might say a technology. Um, and what you're doing is, and it, and it, what it does is it builds uh, in its production of change, it also builds new habits. And culture is about habituation, and not completely, but it, there's a lot of habituation. So there you can get, maybe you get the techno-formative, but certainly you get power. Power is absolutely necessary. My introduction to Kuiper, Duvert, and all of that was through this little book by Bob Gautzwart called Idols of Our Time. And what grabbed me as an undergraduate student in South Africa reading Idols of, of Our Time was a chapter uh, on Afrikaner nationalism as an idolatry. And Gautzwart made the suggestion that any one of these societal spheres that we just talked about, um, if allowed to become the be-all and end-all, spill over their sphere boundaries, become um, powerful false gods that can sweep us along in the way that African nationalism swept along my community. I have been struck through the years of my engagement with this tradition of Caper and Duvier that it is very it, its stance is one of critique. I mean, Dwevyat's great book is, you know, the new critique of theoretical thought. Gatswart offered a critique of various political idolatries. H how does sphere sovereignty help us think about power, the dynamism and dangers of power, and the constraints of power? If you think of uh, differentiation, so something new emerging and then solidifying and, ta and taking a concrete institutional form. I mean, one, one of the things that's going on is something first emerges, then it expands and develops. And the thing is, uh, so what brings it to its, its natural limit, if, if one can use that language, right? I mean, uh, there is a kind of universalizing dynamic uh, to uh, an histor historical emergence within the context of uh, differentiation. And it seems to me that one of the things that both Kuiper and Doiwirt, uh, following Kuiper, were after was how do we, as it were, uh, find a way to think through the limits of these things that are emerging, these societal spheres that are emerging. And uh, so what is the competence and what is the extension of that competence? And when do we, you know, uh, give, given the fact that, you know, you have this, this spreading, this, uni this drive, this universalizing drive, um, what if it goes too far? Mm -hmm. How would we know? Mm -hmm. And how would we wrestle that back? So if the state makes claims that are, you know, really ought not to make um, because that really belongs to a different institution, how do we wrestle that back or how do we resist that uh, and so on and so forth. So how do we make principal judgments of that kind? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's that's really one of the things that sphere sovereignty uh, was designed to do. So it was designed on the one hand to acknowledge uh, the deep Christian meaning of this kind of uh, mm -hmm. differentiation that it go that it that it really goes back to, or rather is, mo is uh, response to the 
to God's very create, creative word and his invitation to uh, us uh, creatures to flourish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that on the one hand, and, um, and on the other to say it doesn't necessarily all go well just because it, it's a, you, know, you can respond in ways that get, it, get you into as much trouble mm-hmm. as um, into flourishing. So, um, you know, uh, so if you think of, um, you know, the expansion of what the state claims mm-hmm. uh, as its jurisdiction, it, which is also going on in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, when does the state overreach? Mm-hmm. Uh, when does the economy overreach? Mm-hmm. Uh, when does the church overreach? There are certainly periods in history when Kuiper or Dovieta would want to say that the church overreached yeah. and so on and so forth. So that's one of the things that it's really important to see um, as a, as a dynamic uh, and intention for the theory of uh, sphere sovereignty. It's one of the things it's good for, or at least in principle it's good for. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we and our weekly guests get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Bob, what's your pleasure? Um, this is uh, probably age-specific um, and, co- you know, context of my life, but I have adult children. My pleasure is um, over good food, and a nice bottle of wine, uh, having a rip-snorting social and political argument with my children because they're in a different generation. So, you know, I'm in a generation where progressive politics is it's still incremental, largely incrementalist. So, you know, what do we want? Incremental change. When do we want it? In due time kind of thing. Uh, and that's because I grew up where it still felt like uh, the social arrangements within which I lived uh, operated in my favor. So it's a very visceral thing, bodily thing, this sense of optimism that it, it, it's, it's working for me. My kids have none of that. They know the system is not there for them. It is not their friend. And so they are much more open to... Uh, radical options that um, make still make me uncomfortable. Uh, they are very thoughtful. They have great reasons for uh, the kind of radical positions they take. Um, they're old enough now not to be uh, uh, too uh, strongly judgmental, shall we say, of their old man's political flabbiness. Um, it is so gloriously fun to see what they're making of themselves and to really admire uh, the kind of thoughtful responses to the world they make, even though I know that it's just different than, than the sorts of judgments and, and so on and so forth that I have. But they've taught me a lot, I have to say. I've, uh, they're, uh, I mean, I, I haven't become a card-carrying member of any radical party or anything like that, but... Um, Definitely voting differently 
than I did 10 years ago. And what fun. So I'm sorely tempted uh, to also uh, revel in the pleasures of having adult children. I can certainly relate to that. But with all the love in my heart today, I actually am taking my pleasures in paying taxes. Um, and <laughs> my pleasure in paying taxes <laughs> comes from the result, which this morning in my life included signing up uh, for the first time in several years for an integrated care medical practice, which is going to be my medical practice mm. going forward. And just honestly reveling in the experience of competent medical care from a nurse and a doctor and receptionist in a clean and functioning hospital context and not having to worry about my future bankruptcy as a result of it, not having to worry about the deep levels of administrative corruption involved in it. And I mean, as a South African Canadian uh, living adjacent to the United States of America, I can go on and on and on about it. And, you know, like, I mean, absolutely come at me with all your criticisms of Canadian healthcare, but by comparison, it is a pleasure. Mm. My pleasure is kind of a, it's a longish standing pleasure that is seasonally appropriate right now uh one particular friend of mine and i uh when we met in undergrad unintentionally started what has become a yearly tradition uh from the beginning of february until february 14th valentine's day um to just inundate each other with the most ridiculous hilarious valentine images and things that we can find um you know the punnier the better the like more interreferential, the better like all these things but in all the years we've been doing this to this day my favorites remain these uh puritan valentines which i miss i think all of you have seen at some point or another but was just remembering how wonderful they are. So they are my pleasure. And I'm going to read you a few because they always make me laugh. Puritan Valentine number one. I need you to help raise livestock and crops or surely we will starve to death come winter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bob, you'll like this one considering all of the uh, uh, cursing tablets and stuff that you brought up in class to, uh, this week. Uh, you've bewitched me. There is no other explanation for the gophers in my garden. <laughs> uh, roses are red, violets are blue, and neither are necessary or useful at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> on that note, um, one of the beautiful things about Spotify, um, Spotify is not my pleasure, but it could be, um, is that I like to go to the, all my like songs ever and then press shuffle. And then you just get like all stuff that you've completely forgotten about. And I did this over the Christmas break, I think. So it's a little stale pleasure, but I'm still listening to the album quite a bit. And I came upon this album called City of No Reply by Amber Kaufman. And Amber Kaufman is an R&B singer, maybe. Uh, I guess R&B is the closest thing that you could say. And 
I, I remember listening to it and being like, I recognize this voice. I don't know where I recognize it from, but I recognize it. And then I was like, no, I think she must have been in the Dirty Projectors. I swear it, that she was one of the, the vocalists, backup vocalists in the Dirty Projectors. And then I looked it up online and I was right. So <laughs> my pleasure is both this album, which is really good, and also being vindicated in my <laughs> thought that she was a backup vocalist on the Dirty Projectors. That's consistently your pleasure. <laughs> being right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Specifically music-related facts. Yeah, true, true, true. That's it for our show this week. We'll be back again with Bob and Gideon next week for the third episode of our series on reformational philosophy, where we're going to talk about how the topics we've touched on so far map onto ideas of worldview at play today. So please join us then. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow Gideon as at Gideon Strauss. And you can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your favorite podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, please tell your friends. Mm-hmm.